Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteiner Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. You are listening to 3 R. We've got an hour of science for you now. In the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you. And Stacey, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane and Dr. Ray. Hey, you live in a regional area. Did you get inundated with water where you were? Um, we did. So I'm um, up, up on the Campaspe River and the broke its banks, um, but fortunately, uh, very uh, minimal sort of houses and and people affected. But yeah, it's pretty... Catastrophic for lots of people, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the amazing thing there too is the um, the time delay from when everything happens to when often the the, mm. the floodwaters actually arrive. Yeah, which can be days, weeks yeah, that's in right. some cases. Yeah, that's so right. I think um, for those of us in Melbourne, it's not over for a lot of people in the country. It's um, still going. Yeah, flood recovery is going to be long. Indeed, pretty tough stuff. Um, we have got some great guests coming up for you today, folks. We're going to be doing a bit of a discussion about a new book that I've been reading up front. Uh, later we'll be talking about frogs we'll be talking about the microbiome it's all happening big show cool big show we're going to start off with some news though uh stacy do you want to kick us off i will kick us off because i'm actually talking about um all the mozzies that might also start descending upon our beautiful state um because of all All the water all the water (laughs) that we've had Yeah. yeah um so you know we've got ideal um breeding conditions for mosquitoes on the back of extensive yeah. floods but also sort of you know the increased rainfall that we've had in spring right. um this year and we're in a phase of la nina which is typically associated with increased um rainfall in spring and mm. summer mm. so um you know there's lots of risks that people will need to be aware of and manage and in fact um this week the health department put out an alert to flood affected areas and clinicians working up there just to raise um uh, you know awareness of these risks of mosquito diseases so the ones that we sort of look out for is ross river virus and yep. arbor forest virus and things like that um so you know there's a range of things that we can do to protect ourselves from getting bitten from mosquitoes um making sure that we're wearing long loose fitting clothing make, yep, yep ch- check check <laughs> make, making sure that we're wearing um mosquito repellent now the mosquito repellent has to contain deet or picaridin so you've got to make sure that your uh, most reputable mosquito repellents have those as active ingredients or right. one of those. But, you know, you just need to make sure you're not sort of putting on random stuff, but um, that, that have those active ingredients. And then clearing out all your stagnant water around the homes and, and gardens and things like that. So not just those flood-affected communities, but also in the cities. But um, quite coincidentally, there was hmm. a research study that was published this week as well that was looking at um, mosquitoes and their behaviours and why is it that some people are more Magnetic prone? to mosquitoes? Yeah, yeah. the mozzie, Cause, mozzie yeah. magnets. Because yep. my mosquito repellent strategy is I just stand next to my wife <gasps> and I'm fine. And Moths to a yeah, flame, I, eh? Well, I'll tell you what the answer is because no one's really ever known, like, why, what is it uh, that differentiates mm. some people from getting bitten to others? And there's all these hypotheses, like, people have said, oh, maybe it's something to do with your blood group. Or Attitude, ma- confidence. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe what you ate, you know. Yeah. Um, but it, most of those theories have little or conflicting evidence to back them up. Mm. But new research published this week has revealed that, um, you know, what might be driving mosquitoes to some people and not others. Um, and it has to do with the olfactory system and our odors so uh, olfactory system of mosquitoes the female biting mosquitoes and particular odors that we emanate so we know that mosquitoes use carbon dioxide and temperature sort of as cues to navigate towards warm-blooded animals and humans obviously um but uh until now no one really understood what are those sort of odors that make mosquitoes mm. attractive to certain people and others so what the researchers did to test this is they they asked volunteers to wear sort of nylon socks on their um, arms just to pick up all the odors emanating from their skin and then people's each person's stockings were put into separate traps and then they released uh, mosquitoes and what they were able to observe was that people with a particular type of um, volatile organic compounds in you know stuck in their sort of fabric of their stockings uh, were more attractive to mosquitoes and it's carboxylic acid well yeah they didn't know that before but so and carboxylic acid um, varies 
in levels from person to person. And what they think it is, you know, we've got this nice healthy layer of moisturising layer of skin with healthy bacteria in it, which hopefully our guests know more yeah, about yeah. that than I do. Yeah. But um, uh, And the bacteria breaking down um, these compounds into carboxylic acid. And so, yeah, the, the problem is with this, <laughs> this scientific studies, I don't know why scientists do that, but they, they say, oh, now we know the answer. But then no one, I don't know what that means for me or for you yeah. or for your wife, you know. Just do, shower more? Yeah, do I have really yeah. high levels of carboxylic acid and how do I get rid of it? You know, yeah. do I wear antibacterial or something like that? Can people smell that? Like, can we smell that as humans? I well, no. Like, so they say it's sort of healthy. Like, it doesn't indicate that right. you're, you know, but, you're dirty or anything like that. But so when carbon dioxide dissolves into water, yeah, it chemically dissociates and creates carboxylic acid. That's why CO2 is acidifying the oceans, is it forms a chemical right. equilibrium. So carboxylic acid is also formed with an equilibrium of the water. If we have water on our skin, yeah. it, carbon dioxide can dissolve. You can form a little bit of it that way. Like The, the sources for it are quite complex. Right. And um, yeah, so I don't know how that would, how would you figure out to say why somebody has more or less of that on their skin? Sweetie. Sweetie people. Yeah. Uh, know, yeah. it, but that might not be true either. It's, yeah, this is, I, I understand what you're saying, like that you put this information out and then it's like, well, so what do we do about it? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, you say, oh, well, it paves way for new research to okay. understand, like maybe maybe in the future we'll have personalised repellents where this is my odour profile and therefore I need to have this particular type of mosquito repellent. And, yeah. you know, Dr. Ray might have a different odour profile and so therefore he needs a different style of repellent. I don't know. So I, don't that's like, I don't like the repellents because most of them stink and some people actually don't like that. I mean, I want an electrical solution. I want to charge up my skin a little bit <laughs> so when the mosquitoes come by just and they're like, oh, I don't know. I got a little shock there. I'm out. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I want a, I want, I want yeah, a different this, sort of solution. This builds on Dr. Shane's real goal to have a personal shield. <laughs> yeah. That uh, <laughs> keeps everyone yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, you know, hey, don't you knock go. it until you've got it. Yep. <laughs> you, you never know. Personal yeah. shield. Um, can be good. Uh, thank you, Stacey. Good to know uh, what's causing those mosquito bites. And mm. you're right, they are coming. So, And I have to say, you mentioned Ross River fever. Yes. Uh, I had a friend who had that in her 20s, and it debilitated her for, for years with chronic fatigue and all sorts of other stuff. So it's a, seri- it's a very serious illness we don't hear about enough, and it's one that really knocks you around, like glandular fever and similar things. Yeah, yeah. So, mm. you know, it's things like um, your fever and um, muscle aches and, yeah. and joint aches and things like that. But interestingly, yeah, the people can get this sort of post-infectious um, yeah. se- se- sequelae. Yeah, that, 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 mm. yeah, it's quite debilitating. I call it long ross. Long Ross, I like that. I don't know. Long well, thing. that seems to be the thing these days. Now, Ray, uh, Mars quakes. Mars quakes. Exciting so, uh, stuff. Yeah, I want to remind everyone. So, you know, when we last, September last year, when we had our very large earthquake for, for Victoria anyway, our 5.9 mm. earthquake in Mansfield in 2021. And did you know that there was in 2022 in September, there was a 2.41 correct quake in Frankston? I do actually, because I am obsessed with the earthquake app. Okay. Um, um, but so, I- <laughs> so they're called earthquakes here, but when you have seismic activity on Mars, it's called Mars quakes. Of course. Of course it is. And more to the point, Mars quakes are a thing. Like, they happen. And what's more interesting is we're actually able to study them right now. And and the, you're not doing this because we were looking at, like, through a telescope and we're not seeing Mars shake. We mm. actually have the InSight Lander, and I, I love what it stands for. It stands for the Interior Exploration Using Seismic Investigation, Geodesy, and Heat Transport <laughs> Lander on Mars. So this has been a three-year mission that landed from NASA that started in mm. February 2019. Where it is a basically, it's a seismometer. It's the only one on Mars. We only have one. Normally, we have why we have the earthquake app and great understandings of earthquakes. Here is lots of seismometers, lots of information, lots of data from many different points, which is often critical for understanding earthquakes. But Mars quakes, we just got the one. Well, the, and the cool thing about that is, the more you have, the more. Um, we, we actually had a, a you know geophysicist on last week, and we were talking about the use of these seismology experiments to determine the interior structure of the Earth, and that's that's why they yeah. want to put one on Mars. But you know, here we have 
thousands and thousands of them. Um, and, and it's like having thousands of ultrasounds running yeah. like on the body, and you, know, you can see all sorts of detail. But on Mars, on one. Mars, you've got one. And yeah. so there's, the way we learn about that is, is there's two different types of waves, seismic waves that come through. The surface ones, which you guessed it, go along the surface of the crust, and then the body ones mm-hmm. that go actually into the core mm-hmm. of the planet a little. So since the InSight lander has been there, it has actually sensed 1,300 different seismic events. Yeah. And it has actually shaped our understanding of Mars's structure. So Mars is kind of like Earth. It's got a, 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 an inner core that's about 1,800 kilometers. It's got a mantle that's another 1,500 kilometers. And then it's got a crust, which is kind of 20 to 70 kilometers. And, and, and the InSight lander has really shaped our understanding of that. The catch is Mars is seismically active, but doesn't typically have, they haven't seen that many big seismic events. I think they've seen one four from Mars, but most of them around two. But in December 21 last year, we had a four. We had a really different type of seismic event. So Mars gets about 200 meteorite impacts in it a year. Now, they're not all big. Remember, Mars doesn't have our atmosphere in the same way, so it doesn't have quite the protection. But there was a very large meteor impact on December 21st last year. And um, and we know this because we saw this amazing kind of 4.0 scale seismic event, and it's very different than a Mars quake because it lasts longer, its surface waves are different. And what was great about this was the Mars Orbital Reconnaissance Satellite, within 24 hours, found the crater. And so they were able to correlate the time and validate that, you know, what the InSight was really doing, working. Because the impact was well over 1,000 kilometers from where the, the seismometer was. It was a mm. 150-meter impact. Mm. The force was equated to a small nuclear device. Yeah. So this is a huge impact. And there's been two on Mars because then it detected another one. And, and you can learn so much more because they can learn about how the crust changes because it's a very different type of surface wave. They learned that the density of the local landing site was much more different than they thought it was. And you don't just get those events. I was talking about this to my son last night, and I said, yeah, you, you know, you're stuck with the little earthquakes, and you don't have, like, some, some big thing. And he went, so space provided. Exactly. Space provided it. And, and so they had these, these two very large impacts, and they were able to learn a lot more about the seismometer. Now, this is really exciting. It's really interesting. And the data that they're looking at, they're data mining it. In fact, every time they look at it, they're realizing there's more and more. And that's really important because we've got a lot of data to look at, but the little InSight rover is about at the end of its life. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and almost it was dead. Almost dead. It was a three-year mission. It runs on solar panels. The solar panels are still working. The battery's still working, but it got covered in a dust storm. Yeah, I see and pictures so it, of it. It looks, like <laughs> it's a, it's the, it looks like a snow-covered lander, but it's all in Mars dust. And um, I always wondered about that. Like, We know about the windscreen wiper. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just chucking I, I, it out there now. So it's, I've always wondered, and it's probably mechanically, it's probably very hard to do. But um, but there's a lot of dust storms on yeah, Mars. Uh, I mean, the good thing about the rovers, you know, um, curiosity and opportunity is that you know you chuck a nuclear power source in there, you don't care about dust. Um, you know, they're nuclear powered, right? They don't rely on solar power, so the, the dust storms don't affect them in the same way. I mean, it still gets in the instruments and stuff, but you know, but the poor little Insight rovers that yeah. are like it's been it's been reducing its power usage progressively over the last few months in the hope that they would get it to last a bit longer but the one, the one thing that i found really cool about this of course is that we know that there's plenty of subsurface ice in oh, the yeah. in the northern and, and southern polar regions but you know part of the reason for that is damn cold right it's not as cold around the equator so if we're going to put humans on mars we want to put them on the equator hang on where was the where was it's, the water it's again? It's in the wrong place, right? Yeah. So, but this impact, when you look at the images, you can see that it blew out some subsurface ice, mm-hmm. which is really exciting because it means you might be able to actually utilize that for drinking, for fuel, for all sorts of things that are, that are necessary in terms of um, in terms of these these missions. So it's yeah, it's it's cool stuff. But the, the idea that I just think so that one meteorite, which was pretty big, yeah happened within that three, three-and-a-half-year window that we just happened to have this craft sitting there on Mars. What's the chance of that? I mean, because we don't... There, there aren't that many impact sites on Mars. Yeah, if you the, look, there's not that many. It's not like the moon, and some of these are recent, which is interesting, because a lot of the ones on the moon are older, and so but they're, they're all different because... What, what does Mars have, like 1% of our atmospheric pressure? Like, it's yeah. almost no atmosphere. So when these things come down, they don't get slowed down by, mm. by the atmosphere. They just go bang. We don't know if they're more frequent, though, because 
we don't just hide rovers with those mm. dust storms. We hide the impact craters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is about yeah. 150 meters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some in, of them are covered up pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. So what were the chances? Pretty crazy. Yeah. No, it's absolutely wild stuff. I got excited too. Ray and I were battling over the bizarre. We're both talking about tell. it. I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. Anyway, folks, we're going to take a short break for some station announcements. And when we come back, we're going to be speaking to an author who's written a really interesting book that uh, I'm actually reading, which for a long time uh, listeners of the show know is a minor miracle because I read slow. <laughs> and uh, it takes a bit for me to get to read a book. So here's some important station announcements, and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Einstein at Gago on 3RRR. Triple Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. On the line with us now is Anna Spargo-Ryan. Anna is the author of a new book that's just been released called A Kind of Magic. Good morning, Anna. Can you hear us? Good morning, I can indeed. It's great to have you on the show. You and I have been interacting a bit on Twitter over the last, I don't know, couple of years or so, and yes. I've, I've you know, followed your story a bit, but you've just brought out, this is your first book? This is my third book. Third book? My first non-fiction. Yeah, first uh, non-fiction book. First non-fiction book, and I guess the, the first book that really is a memoir about your, your life in many regards. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Now, I'm, long-time listeners of the show know I'm a, Probably, I'm a slow reader, so I don't read a lot of books. This is one of my great super superpowers is that I read really slowly. Um, but I'm 72 pages into your book, which for me is something, because um, I've only been reading it for about three days. Well, not three full days, but you know, like between between other things, I don't get a lot oh, of time. Oh, you've done other things. Yeah, Ooh, I've done other things. Um, now, tell us a bit about the, first of all, the motivation for, for putting all this down into the book, because this is really deep stuff about your your struggles with anxiety and, and, and your mm. life. Hmm. Um, I think the main motivation is to try to help other people who are going through the same thing, which sounds <laughs> very uh, saviory of me, but I am very lucky to be able to write about it with relative freedom, low risk and, uh, you know, high literacy and that not everybody has that um, set of criteria that make it easy to do that. So I hope that in writing about it, I can help other people feel less alone, that I can help them feel that there is... I don't know, a community of people around them who can lift them up and would like to do that uh, and hopefully to give language to people who are struggling to articulate what it feels like. That that last bit is probably my main motivator and I talk about that quite a bit in the book actually. Yeah. And, and give us a bit of an insight there because one of the things that I found really interesting was how how much detail you gave to speaking about the various types of anxiety and how they, they differ. Mm. Um, because we, we have this one word that we use and, mm. you know, it's like the English word for love and whether they're 26 in Greek or whatever, you know, this sort of thing. We have one word yeah. for anxiety and it, it's sort of a, a one-size-fits-all, but it really doesn't. And you go into some nuance there. Mm. So to, tell, tell us about that and how, how that fits for you relative to, you know, a lot of other people. Mm. It's not just one word for anxiety either. It's it's one word for the clinical and non-clinical type of anxiety. So if you're standing in front of your school and you have to give a presentation, you might feel anxious, which is not clinically relevant because it's normal to feel anxious in front of a crowd like that. But it's also the same word that we have for mm. having anxiety for irrational reasons or for clinically significant reasons. So we have this one word, as you say, that is meant to encompass all of these experiences it therefore misses so much nuance in the way that different people experience anxiety. And I'll refer to anxiety disorders in saying that specifically. So my anxiety disorders are different from somebody else's anxiety disorders. They are experienced differently. They have a different impact on someone's life. But we only have this one way of kind of going to a doctor and saying, well, look, anxiety is the only word I know. So that's the one I'm going to offer to you. And the doctor then takes that one word and goes, well, hopefully I can figure out how to help you, I guess. Mm. Um, where what we actually miss, I think, is all of the language that people bring from their lived experience with them that isn't clinical language, but that is very insightful, that is nuanced, that is, I guess, designed to try to make someone who doesn't experience the same thing understand what we mean. So, you know, when we don't have any more than just the word anxiety, if we go to a doctor or we go to a friend or a parent or a partner and say, hey, I feel sometimes like there are bubbles in my chest. It's metaphoric language, but it has words in it that are common that everybody understands. 
I feel like we're missing a trick in not listening better to that kind of language and incorporating it into a clinical setting so that we can introduce nuance into the healthcare that we can offer to people with mental illness. Mm. And how well placed is some of that language in various parts of the healthcare system, do you feel? I mean, there's a big difference, I think, between seeing a, a GP and a psychologist and a mm. psychiatrist and a neuroscientist and you know, a neurologist. You know, there, there are various mm. aspects there that people with many of these disorders will have to interact with. Do, do you mm. find that there is a, a vast difference in terms of the specificity of that language in those various domains? That's a good question. The, the most nuance I have seen is with a neuropsych. Mm. So it seems to have more... So there's this, you would know this, but this field of research and medicine called narrative medicine, which is designed to look at a whole patient's story, you know, the, all of the surrounding issues, the surrounding life, the surrounding person, everything that exists outside of just just the issue that they've come in with today. Neuropsych, I think, is a bit like that. If you're assessing someone for a certain kind of disorder or with certain criteria, it is important to look at all of that surrounding context. So I think actually they probably do it the best. A GP is not a specialist. And so, you know, they're working with the limited vocabulary the limited expertise that they have which is fair enough but because it's the first point of contact for everybody it's difficult um i think other you know the under resource and underfunded nature of mental health care means that we do need to use shortcuts and language is one of the shortcuts that we use so if you have someone the cat team comes to your house the crisis assessment triage team comes to your house and says how are you feeling and you say well you know, I, I'm trying to now articulate to you all the different feelings that I've had, the reason I think I'm in crisis, I feel like my body is filled with mercury, I feel like my arms are not attached to my body. And all They are so under-resourced that connecting those kinds of descriptors to the clinical or diagnostic criteria is really time-consuming and really, you know, adds an extra mm. layer of challenge to providing that healthcare. So I think overall it's not very good, but it's also it's easy to see why, I yeah. guess. Yeah, indeed. And, and when you, uh, one of the things I thought was interesting in your book was you, you sort of, um, in various parts of the book, you talk about your new experience with a new psychologist, which I think is really mm. interesting. Um, I mean, what advice would you give to people there? Because I know, I know myself, you know, like recently I, I shot off an email to the psychologist I, you know, saw probably last time about a year ago and thinking mm. it might be time to have a, you know, as I say, a tune up, you know, and, <laughs> and I haven't heard back. And I'm thinking, you know, uh, <laughs> what happened to this person? But the idea of seeing a new one just seems to come with such a barrier, like so much work to do before you get into that sort of clinically valuable space. I mean, what, you know, what's your sort of advice on that? Because I think a, a lot of people don't always find the, the right person first time out. Mm. Yeah, I think that part is really important. I saw the same psychologist for nearly 10 years and I didn't realise that we were a good fit on a personality basis. Mm -hmm. We liked each other, I think, at a sort of a friendship level. And she is a very good psychologist, but I didn't realize that seeing her was not helping me very much right. because I didn't have anything to compare it to. And I think one of the things that is lacking in mental health care of this nature is just having any kind of understanding of what good therapy looks like, what you should expect to gain from going to therapy, and then having some way of measuring progress in a significant kind of way. I, I mean, I have gone to a lot of therapy and mostly I went and thought, okay, well, I'm going to therapy, therefore it must be helping because the going to therapy part, and I was very engaged and I was very enthusiastic and I went diligently, therefore this must be helping. When I then saw a therapist who I did click with in a clinical way, everything was different. I, I made so much progress so quickly because she was attuned to the things that I needed help with and was therefore able to help me really quickly. And I don't know anything about her. I don't really understand her personality because I haven't seen it enough to really know who she is. Or, yeah. um, But the way that she understands how to help me is so significant that I've made, you know, 10, 15 years worth of progress in the past two years. I think that the challenge, I mean, I know the challenge is that uh, it's expensive to cycle through psychologists to find the one that works. Um, sometimes those initial appointments are even more expensive than the ongoing appointments. You need to, you know, the, the 
speed at which you use up your mental health care plan subsidized sessions is just chaotic that you've used them all and you haven't even found a good psychologist yet and then as you say i mean you can contact a dozen and their books are so full especially after covid or during covid um that even getting an appointment with one you know you could be waiting six to eight months just to Mm. see somebody and then if they don't work out then you wait another six to eight months like yeah i mean it's uh, that part of the system is not designed to help people and i'm not really sure what is being done about it but it is a that is a life or death scenario there yeah absolutely and i, th- I think your comment there about the assessment I, I think it's very hard for people you know as you say you've you've had many years of experience in in interacting with psychologists so you're probably mm. may, maybe i'm wrong here but you're probably better placed to assess the clinical value of those those appointments mm. with your new psychologist a lot of people going in first time even or even even you know a few times mm. in Will, will not be in a position to determine whether it's clinically helping them. In fact, they would rely mm. on the psychologist to be making that determination for them. So, you know, yes. in, in a sense, there's a big gap there as to, you know, is this person being helpful or not? And mm. I think I know in my case, I always found if they didn't challenge my thinking, if it didn't annoy me a bit every now mm. and then, um, <laughs> it probably wasn't, you know, it probably wasn't pushing me in a direction that I needed to, yeah. to go in. It wasn't pushy, but it was more challenging to my thinking and the way I was thinking about my mm. worldview. And not all of them were, were good at that. That was a, that was a, big, a big issue. Um, mm. And I mean, that. well, sorry, just no, that, that mm. this compounding issue of the help that you get is often only as good as how, how much insight you have into your own feelings and brain yeah. and thought processes and experiences. And the, I mean, going to a psychologist you're the only person who's going to report on who you are and what you're going through and that is a real challenge when it comes to um providing the information that a psychologist needs in order to help you because you don't know what they you don't know what's important you're looking at the entire scope of your life going i feel anxious or i feel depressed or i feel you know whatever you're feeling how do you select the parts of your life that are going to be relevant to the psychologist in order to provide you with the appropriate care, compounded by the fact that mental illnesses often have these issues of masking behaviour that, you know, I write in my book about wanting this, this like therapy paradox of wanting the therapist to believe that you don't need to be in therapy because the mental illness makes you anxious, insecure, you want them to believe that you're a whole person and so you mask the things that they need to know as well. This sort of this this challenge of I need to be sick enough so that people will believe that I need help, but also I need to be well enough so that I can go and advocate for myself without someone thinking that I can't do that. And yep. that that part of it is just is so hard to navigate. And I don't there need to be better resources to help people to do that in a successful way that allows them to be be vulnerable but in a safe and controlled environment. Yeah. Now, um, Anna, your book is essentially, and I'm speaking because I'm only 72 pages in, so I'm assuming. I'm, I'm, you know, <laughs> oh, it gets does, really good. Does it after get better? That. No, yeah. it's great. I mean, it's 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 funny. <laughs> I I have a such a love for language, and and when books are, are poorly written, I really struggle to read them. And I think your book has got some beautiful language in it, and there's a a potency oh, there's a potency to the way you describe things, which kind of takes the person there, which I think is really nice. Um, it's called A Kind of Magic. I want to believe that it was named after the Queen song from the film Highlander. Is that true? Is that true? Do you know, it, <laughs> it's a little bit true. And also, if you read or if you listen to all the other lyrics of that song, they're quite pertinent. Yeah, in, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go. See, um, that's what happens when you grow up yeah. in the 70s and 80s. You, you get stuck in, in these time warps. Um, and right. uh, Look, thanks so much for sending me the book as well. Um, I hope you do well. With, I hope a lot of people who have various issues of mental health, in particular anxiety, have a look at this book. Mm. It's, um, I, I mean, I'm not sure. How do you feel now that it's out? It's, uh, it's a big thing. <laughs> I felt very scared initially and then the most amazing thing has happened which is that people keep sending me messages or coming up to me and saying your book changed my life. I'm like, well, I mean, that's amazing. Yep. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. I, I hoped that it would help people but the way that people have said I've given it to my psychologist so they can better understand me, I've given it to my dad, my partner, my son, we are now having constructive, helpful valuable conversations that is incredible what an amazing thing so i mean i feel grateful and surprised and overwhelmed and amazed yep yeah 
Well, well done, and uh, thanks for sending it in, and thanks for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gogo. Folks, the book is called A Kind of Magic, easy to remember the title, by Anna Spargo Ryan, and uh, I think it's pretty easy to find online or in bookstores, and I think Anna's been wandering around secretly signing copies in all different shops, as far (laughs) as I could tell, so you might find the signed copy somewhere. Anna, great chatting to you. Take care, and I'm sure I'll see you on Twitter at some stage. See you there. Thanks so much. Excellent. Folks, we're going to take a break for some important station announcements and we'll be coming back in a moment talking about frogs and viruses. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. On the line with us now, all the way from Sydney, is Emma Harding. Emma is a PhD student at the School of Biotechnology and Biomolecular Sciences at the University of New South Wales. Welcome to the show, Emma. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. I saw a press release about your work and I thought, you know, we've got to have a chat about this. You're working on, in particular, on viruses that affect amphibians, so, you know, frogs and reptiles um, and so forth. This is something that um, we've actually heard a lot about issues with um, frogs and so forth over the last couple of years. Is this a problem that is getting bigger or is it just we are a bit sort of unaware of what's going on in that part of the world? It's a little bit of both. It's probably always been a problem. Um, amphibians in particular tend to be quite uh, sensitive to their environment. And so we see a lot of changing environments over mm. the past few years. Um, so it's definitely becoming a bigger problem. And we're only just starting to really get a grip on the scope of it. Yeah. Now, one of the things I loved about your work was this idea of actually trying to scope out what viruses actually do affect amphibians. Like, And I, I suppose I didn't have... Um, much of an understanding of how little we know about how many viruses are out there, you know, affecting frogs and and reptiles and so forth. So talk us through how how you've been going about sort of identifying them. Yeah, um, well, it's really tough if you're you're trying to diagnose something because we just know nothing about it. So, you know, it could be pretty much any virus. We have no idea what's in there. So what we decided to do was get as many data sets. Um, So when you sequence the DNA or the RNA of something, it's just a lot of letters. And what we are doing is looking through lots of those sequencing runs to look for patterns of letters that we know come up in viruses. Um, So we're kind of looking for patterns and going, okay, is that a new virus that's maybe related to the human version, but an amphibian version, because it's got three of the same letters, but the fourth one is off. Hmm. Um, So it's a big computational study. But we're just trying to find as much as we can. And and how many new viruses have you come across doing this? I mean, I assume this is sort of like machine learning slash AI type stuff. Yeah, pretty much. Um, in this study, we found 26 new viruses. Wow. And that was in 230 samples. So that's almost one in every 10 samples, like one new virus. Is that unusual? Like, is that what you would expect in, in other species like mammals and so forth? Do we see that many viruses in such a small sample? No, not so many undiscovered ones. So it just goes to show that they're there. We just haven't found them yet. Um, so if we're looking at mammals, you'd find one in 10 maybe, but we'd already know about it. Right, yeah. Now, in, in terms of um, the collection of these samples, I mean, what's what's involved in determining, you know, what what particular samples you go after? Is this, you know, one type of frog, for example, from 10 different locations, or is it 10 different types of frogs from one location? Like, how do you go about that? For us, we were just going for as much as possible. Mm. Uh, so we went to find samples that other people had sequenced. So yep. they might have been doing different studies looking at um, the immune system or the development of frogs, for example. But we can take that data and use it for our purposes. So in the future, we'd love to design something by looking at the same frog in 10 locations or something. But for now, we're just getting whatever we can get. Yeah, interesting. Now, one of the things I find most fascinating about this work is this idea of understanding the history of viruses and their complexity. So, you know, we have obviously an obsession with viruses that affect humans, mm. but, you know, we're, we're, complex, we're complex things, you know, compared to frogs or some, some other creatures. And when you look at that, the viruses that we have, they're obviously different on many occasions to the viruses that are effect, you know, affect other animals on, on the planet. How, do, how does this stuff track with what you're doing? I mean, are these sort of prehistoric sort of viruses that later evolved into ones that affect humans? Are they connected in some way? Yeah, that's what we'd love to find out. And we are seeing a lot of that, that what we see in amphibians and reptiles is like a primitive version. So it's much simpler 
but we can tell it's the same type of virus, but it's just stripped down in a sense. Um, and so by looking at what is conserved or what's still there in amphibians versus what's in us, we can start to predict what might happen in the future because mm. we get a bit more of an understanding of the journey the virus has taken. Yeah, interesting. Emma, it's Stacey here. Um, so these are RNA viruses that you're looking at and presumably you know, RNA viruses change quite rapidly and evolve quite swiftly. So <laughs> is it is this sort of research that you're going to have to do like forever and forever and forever because every time you look there'll be something new? That, that's sort of my first question. And the second question is of these new viruses that you're identifying, are they clinically re relevant to frogs? Like are they affecting frog populations adversely or is it just sort of these incidental findings about you know the various viruses that may not decimate frog populations at all but they can just sort of you know they're relatively innocuous viruses or can you can you start tracking sort of implications of those um, viruses on frog populations and predict which ones are the um, uh, severe viruses that you might be interested in versus innocuous ones hmm. all right question one first um, so we are never going to be caught up with finding viruses, I think, because like you said, they mutate so quickly. What we're looking for instead is a kind of model virus for each family. So at the moment, we don't even know if things like coronaviruses can infect frogs or um, influenza viruses or, you know, nidoviruses. So we just first want to see what groups infect them. Uh, we're never going to know that there's 10 or there's 100 that infect frogs. That's something we can't do at the moment. So it is definitely going to be an eternal kind of research project but we can do our best to see the big picture to start with and then in terms of how severe they are we can't know that from a computational study but we can guess based on what we've seen um, and combine it with like vet research and things like that so for example we did find some new viruses called nidoviruses and that's what caused the bellinger river turtle outbreak in 2015 which almost killed all of the bellinger river turtles mm. in northern new south wales so we know along with that there's also lots of snakes in captivity that have died from nidoviruses so we can kind of guess or presume that these novel viruses are definitely something that should be flagged and can lead to severe mortality events um, but that's something for further research interesting now emma before we uh let you go i have to ask of these tw 26 i think you said 26 viruses that you've mm -hmm. uh, unearthed or unfrogged I'm not sure what the term is there um <laughs> do you get to name them yes we do did you give them oh, cool names? Don't, don't tell me you know it's bc50712 or something like that did you give them good names I did. The best one I got was called Champy Virus because it was a chameleon percornavirus. Okay. So that was pretty fun. <laughs> but th there are some rules we have to follow, unfortunately, oh, to limit our See, creativity. If I was, if I was there, there's some of my relatives that you know, not ones that I hate or anything, <laughs> but ones that I might name a virus after just because of right. the way they behave. Uh, you know, there's going to be temptations there. <laughs> well, Emma, oh, look. So many. Yeah, so many temptations. Um, look, it's great chatting to you. I mean, it's amazing you're doing this. You, you know, you, you're way into your PhD with about, I understand, about a year to go. I just write up now 26 new viruses. You know, that seems like a, that should be enough to get you across the line. Are your supervisors holding you back a bit there? Oh, no, no. It's myself. I'm keen to keep going. I don't want it to end. <laughs> I want to find out more. Fantastic. Look, that's a, that's a great attitude. Emma Harding, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck with the ongoing work and, uh, yeah, keep finding those viruses that we didn't know about. It's great stuff. Thank you so much. Folks, that was Emma Harding, a PhD student from the School of Biotechnology and Biomolecular Sciences at the University of New South Wales. We're going to take a break for some music and when we come back, we'll have our next two guests in the studio with us talking about the gut microbiome and an event that's coming up this week triple r on fm digital online and via the app welcome back everybody you're listening to einstein and go go we have a couple of actual real live people in the studio today as well as our online guests we've got the dr lincoln stamp and marlene howe both of them are from the stamp and howe laboratory there's a coincidence um <laughs> in the department of anatomy and physiology at the university of melbourne lincoln marlene welcome to the studio 
Thanks for having us on, Shane. It's great to have both of you here. Now, I uh, got some contact from you during the week because there's an event coming up. And before we get to that, because it, it sounds pretty good, and I know a couple of people speaking, so it sounds you know like really good people that you've got in. But you guys work on the gut microbiome. And I think, uh, Lincoln, you were on the show a couple of years ago, but um, where are we at with the gut microbiome? I think Stacey was trying to sell her you know, fecal transplant, fecal transplant <laughs> samples earlier. Uh, in the green room where, where are things at what just give us a sort of update on our knowledge on the microbiome at this point yeah it's a huge uh open field to be honest and there's been a huge amount of research in the last decade or so around the microbiome itself and how it's impacting not just gut health but also mm. mental health so there's a nervous system in your gut um, it controls a lot of different functions it communicates with that microbiome yep. and also connects up to the brain um, and so there's been a lot of research recently about how the microbiome can affect the food and mood and gut brain axis and its role in a number of different diseases including some neurodegenerative diseases like parkinson's and huntington's diseases yeah, as well wow. and like how much do we do we know about where that you know when we talk about that gut brain connectivity i mean i heard once in this that the number of neurons in our gut is similar or exceeds that in our brain is that oh less in the than the, brain, the brain but, but more than the spinal cord more than the spinal cord yeah, yeah. so you see I, i've got more in my gut than my <laughs> <laughs> but like that seems extraordinary to me like that is a very large number are they interconnected in some way or are they operating independently yeah so we study a lot actually on the enteric nervous system which is the second brain what we affectionately call the second brain in the gut yep. and it actually runs along the entire length of your entire gut so from your esophagus down to your stomach and small and large intestines um, there's this interconnecting network of nerve cells and their support cells the glial cells and they are really important for controlling the motility of the gut right. so um, we uh, yeah so if you imagine if you didn't have these neurons in your gut and you had to think about what your gut was doing all day you wouldn't get anything else done you would <laughs> yeah. just be thinking about Digesting yeah. your food. Move the food, move the food. <laughs> yeah. So so I know, you know, because we've had a lot of uh, bio people in here over the years, but, you know, you, you, you cut up a worm. You don't just get two worms. You also get an in insight into almost mm. the same types of neurons that we have in our brains, even though it's just a mm. worm. How do the neurons and that that you're seeing in the gut compared to what we have in the brain or the worm? Are they, are they of similar complexity and capability? So in the gut, there's a lot of different uh, types of neurons which use different chemical transmitters mm. or neurotransmitters. And a lot of these are the same as the uh, neurotransmitters that's used in the brain. So um, there's a lot of similarity. And actually, um, in through evolution, it's kind of thought that the gut, uh, the brain in the gut was probably actually the first brain to develop because digesting your food, animals being able to eat their food is uh, incredibly important for their survival. So, the t you know, I'm thinking with my stomach is actually not was true once. Yeah, and so yeah. that's why it's the f really the first brain, we think. Yeah, we wow. Think. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you have neurons in glial cells, and I remember last year on the show we spent, or a couple of years ago, we spent a lot of time in one instance talking about how the brain has to flush itself, and glial cells are very important for um, flushing analytes and how that affects sleep and rest mm. and, and kind of natural cycles to the body. So does that happen in the gut as well? Like, are there times where we need to sleep, we need to not be eating, that these things really affect how, how our gut operates with those glial cells flushing the neurons? Uh, yeah, actually, that's something that we are studying in our lab, the glial cells in the gut, uh, the enteric glial cells. They're actually a really understudied population of cells, and we don't know a lot about what they do. Um, there's evidence that they work a lot like the glial cells in the brain, so um, in terms of uh, controlling synaptic communication between different cells, the glial cells in the brain sort of mop up some of those extra neurotransmitters that might be present um, in the synapse, but the mm. glial cells in the gut appear to have that kind of role, um, but they're also doing many other different things, and you can imagine your gut environment's very different from your brain environment. Um, you don't have that clear blood-brain barrier that's in your um, head, in your skull, in the gut. Your neurons and glial cells are sort of exposed to a lot more of the things that are floating around in the gut environment. Yeah. Do, do we have a feel then, Marlene, as mm -hmm. to what is causing the... Um, the change in mood potentially that we experience as a result of and, and i don't want to just say food we eat because it's a lot more complicated than that i guess it's the whole environment that we create in our gut in our entire gut so do we have a feel for 
you know, as you say, there's that blood-brain barrier. There's neurons in various places. Do we do we know that at this point? What what the connectivity is between the brain and the yeah, like why why our mood potentially and things like depression and so forth might be affected by you know by this. Um, yeah, there's uh, lots of different um, so, lots of different factors. I guess there's um, the importance of what we eat. Uh, the food is a really big uh, key players, mm. um, and this is something that um, there's a, quite a lot of different studies being conducted in this area. Um, there's evidence that um, eating a lot of plant and vegetables and fibre in your diet is really um, important for your... Well, beneficial for your mood, but there's a lot of interacting components. So it's mm. not the food affects uh, that microbiome, which is present yeah. in the gut, and then that affects um, also the immune cells that are in the gut, which then affects the neurons in the gut. But it could also go the other way around. So it's a bit of a chicken or egg situation. Yeah. So we don't know the exact cause, but there's a lot of different players. But we should eat well. We should, we should uh, eat well. <laughs> yeah. But chocolate makes us feel better. Yes, absolutely. Is, this, is that actually true? Um, one, one of the things well, I, was, I, think so. I, I found interesting about this is I, I remember reading uh, many years ago something about... Um, when we're talking about jet lag, it not just being about the temporal changes that we influence in our body clock, but it might also be about the microbiome being absolutely assaulted, not just by airline food, but by, <laughs> but by different, different foods that we're not used to when we travel. Is, is, has that gone any further, that mindset? Yeah, absolutely. And this is actually another thing that we're studying in the oh, lab, wow. yeah. a lab cool. of many tangents. So you guys just travel around, you travel around testing foods everywhere. Is that no, the study? More yeah. looking at the circadian clock. So right. obviously you've got a circadian rhythm and you've got a circadian clock in your central nervous system, in your brain, that controls yep. a lot of different bodily functions and it's driven by detection of light through your retina and your eye. Um, but there's actually also peripheral circadian clocks. So there's one in your gut and liver. And that can be decoupled from the one in your brain. And this is what happens when people travel across time zones. Oh, wow. And also shift workers have, yeah, yeah. have been shown across many, many studies to have really disrupted and um, poor gut function and have a lot of disorders of the gut because of that uncoupling of the um, central and, and peripheral clock because you're eating at the wrong time of day and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah we're looking into changes in the enteric nervous system in the different um, light-dart cycle and the effect of food can have on that um, enteric nervous system clock genes as well. Can I tell you, if we ever go to Mars, we're screwed. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and because the timing there is just a little bit out. Like, uh, I wonder, do, do we have a feel for how much it has to change by? Because, like, 10, 20%. I would have thought causes us some serious problems. Yeah, that's a great question. But I think also the astronaut food would probably be doing bad things to us as well. Yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah, nothing like a little bit of radiation on the way yeah. and, and some, uh, some zero G to make your gut go a bit crazy, I suppose. Now, the, the, back to the big question of um, poo transplants, because I think, look, everyone's eager to make money. And I know Stacey's setting up something in her backyard to collect and freeze. <laughs> As, you know, this stuff sort of blew up for a while a few years back and I think it was happening everywhere and then all of a sudden there were some people who dialed it back and went, whoa, hang on, <laughs> there's some other stuff in there you might not want to transplant. Mm. Um, where is that at at the moment in terms of, is, is it being used as a particular treatment for anything um, that's, that's significant? Yeah, definitely. So I think the, there's probably only one disease which in which fecal microbiota transplants or poo transplants is really the frontline treatment, and that's for yep. a particular bacterial infection called C. diff or Clostridium right. difficile. It's actually a resident bacteria in everyone's gut, but in some people this bacteria takes over for mm -hmm. one reason or another, right. and it's potentially fatal. Wow. Um, so uh, fecal microbiota transplants over a long period now have been shown to be really effective for treating that particular disease, and it's actually life-saving. Um, but there's a lot of clinical studies, clinical trial studies going on at the moment for a range of different disorders, some of them a bit more reasonable than others, I think, in my opinion. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of really strong evidence now that this fecal microbiota or poo transplants can be really effective for um, inflammatory bowel disease, in particular ulcerative colitis. So wow. that's really, really exciting. There's been a couple of two-year follow-ups on patients who've had these poo transplants, and they've had really, really good long-term responses to the, to the poo transplants. It's always so the last really place you look for a solution, isn't it? Yes. Um, Stacey? keep freezing it's uh <laughs> it's gonna be worth a lot yeah, of money hold on to it very health very healthy poo yeah very healthy poo. Uh, well it's regional poo we know that regional poo is going to be better than city poo because of the just the the general environment you think so i'm sure yeah there's a lot of lot of bad contaminants in the city. Anyway, uh, now, we actually got you guys in here mainly to talk about the fact that there is a public lecture coming up, and I believe it is uh, this week at 5.30, so that's uh, this Thursday night at 5.30, and it's at the the big spot auditorium at Melbourne Uni. So if you, it's the 
it looks like a badly shaped cow. How can I describe that? <laughs> it does. The, That's the exactly right. Um, you know, it looks like a badly shaped cow, big square cow. It's not just across the road from the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre, the Peter Mac Hospital. So it's in there. What's happening at this event? So we have uh, four speakers. Lincoln is actually going to be introducing the gut and the second brain. Um, and then we have uh, Professor Felice Jacker from Deakin, mm. who uh, heads the Food and Mood Centre. So she'll be talking about the effect of diet on your gut health and your mental health, which um, and some really great clinical studies that they've got in the area that's undertaking being undertaken at the moment. Um, and then we have two uh, guest speakers from the University of Sydney. Yeah, so we've got um, Andrew Holmes and Aaron Shanahan will be talking about the microbiome generally and also talking about interventions for gut health, including faecal microbiome transplants and also touching on some pre the effects of pre and probiotics. Right. Um, so, yeah, we're pretty excited to get this group of people along and yeah. um, encourage yeah. everyone to come along. Register online to please uh, come along and see in person, or also um, we'll be doing a Zoom webinar as also available. Right, so people can so it's a hybrid event. People can attend via Zoom if they're uh, yes, concerned so. about any any viruses that might be going around at the moment. <laughs> yes. you know, not, not to, we you know don't mention the war. Um, you know, believe it or not, still hanging around, right, Stacey? Yes, indeed it is. But I did have a question about probiotics. Oh, we yeah. got time for a question. Yes, we do. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, you might know the answer. But well, I'll come to the lecture. That that <laughs> yes. might be better. Um, but you know, you know, there's um, probiotic drinks that you can drink. I've always wondered whether, um, or the stomach acids sort of kill off all the good bacteria by the time it gets into the gut. It's you know most of the good bacteria is dead anyway, and is mm. is that worth it, or is there uh, is there more evidence around different ways to deliver probiotics that do retain sort of the harsh environment of your stomach and the stomach acids and and your gut, so that the good stuff does retain? Is it? What's the answer? I'd really like to know. Yes, I would also like to know. <laughs> um, are you cool today? Keeps the doctor away. I don't think that's really true. Oh. I think there's probably some evidence that the prebiotic approach is probably better for long-term whole gut kind of repopulation of the right microbi microbiota, so, and that's altering the gut environment rather than just shoving um, short-term probiotics down. in. Yeah. So eat fermented foods. Yeah. Good fermented foods, not the decayed stuff that's yeah, in, right. in the fridge. Okay. I think I read somewhere that uh, those things have high high variability in terms of their impact on different people. So for some people, they work quite well. Other mm -hmm. people, they see no impact at all. And if you're one of those people, don't buy them. Waste yeah. of money. Yeah. So, but some people actually did see a bit of a benefit. Well, that's, yeah, definitely a good point that um, you can put the bacteria in your gut, but then you've got to feed them to keep them mm. alive. So, you've got to be eating the right foods to maintain those good bacteria as well as not just introduce them in. Yeah, and bacteria. if you didn't have that bacteria in your gut, it's probably because you weren't eating the right stuff in the first place. So, that stuff's going to die that's off real quick. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> problem solved, Stacey. Just start eating some better food up there in the country and you'll get all the stuff that you've been buying from, from the supermarket. Okay, free. Thanks. Your poo. <laughs> and and, and fermented poo. Yeah, no one's going to want your poo if you don't eat good stuff. <laughs> Lincoln and Marlene, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, just before you go, where should people look on the web to find details for the event? Yeah, so if you just uh, Google Eventbrite and search for um, Brains, Bugs and Bows lecture, you should be able to find it there, or you can also find it on our Twitter handle, at Lab. Excellent. Brains, Bugs and Bows. Bows. Yeah, I think people spots. can remember that one. Thanks so much, both of you, for coming in. Great to have you in the studio, and I hope the event goes really well, folks. If you want to get along, it's from 5.30 till 7 p.m. this Thursday, the 3rd of November, in Carlton. Easy to get to, and should be a lot of fun, especially if some of those speakers are uh, excellent, excellent communicators of science. Thanks, guys. Thanks Great for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, uh, Stacey, Ray, we are almost out of time. We're going to have to hand over in a minute to the team from Edith. Yeah, I want to thank you guys. I'm, I'm glad I missed the discussion in the green room. I feel like it should be called the brown room now. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, yeah, if you've been in there, you know, yeah. not a lot of green. Uh, but that's triple R. You know, we uh, we just go in whatever direction we go. Thank you, Stacey. Good to see you again. Thank you, Dr. Shane. Nice to see you too. Folks, uh, we will be back again with more science for you next week. So until then, have a great Sunday, folks. See you next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.